Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask, right here at sfm.scot. Hi, I'm John Cole, and this week the news is all about records, relegation, promotion, handbags and anniversaries. The records belong to Celtic and Aberdeen. Relegation and promotion was being lamented or celebrated all over the country. The spats involved Pedro Cachinha, Derek McInnes, Brendan Rodgers and Lee Griffiths. And the anniversary was the green and white elephant in the room, Lisbon, 50 years on. In a special two-part interview with Jim Craig, the first part later in the programme, I hope to get an insight into the greatest achievement in Scottish football and its enduring charm 50 years later. Meanwhile, in Glasgow's High Court, the Craig White trial has continued to provide the media with sound bites that they then just basically ignore as the former Rangers chairman fights for his freedom. To help find a pathway through the undergrowth of the Scottish legal system, I'll be speaking to court reporter James Dolman later as well. The dust has now settled on all but the Scottish Cup and the Premiership promotion relegation struggle between the United and Hamilton Ackies. But ahead of those crucial fixtures, both Celtic and Aberdeen helped themselves to a few records at the weekend. Celtic's 2-0 defeat of Hearts saw them complete their league campaign unbeaten, the first time that feat has ever been achieved in full league competition in Scotland. In itself, of course, that is a spectacular feat, but the victory over the Jam Tarts saw them overtake the previous best points and goals for tally in the competition. 106 of each for the Statos, uh, Celtic also clocked up the most ones ever in the competition, 34, and the largest margin of victory. Aberdeen themselves beat their own club record points tally as they set about Partick Thistle at Fair Hill, leaving six goals to the good with none conceded. It's fair to say then that next week's Scottish Cup final will be contested by two teams with some form behind them. For Celtic, of course, a win would extend their domestic Invincibles title into the competitions as well as the league and adding another treble to the Parkhead Roll of Honour. For Aberdeen, bagging the trophy would be proof that they are the established main challengers to Celtic in Scotland and the return to the heady days of the 80s when they won half the Scottish Cups available to be won. But it was relegation for Inverness, Caledonian Thistle, despite beating Motherwell at the weekend, Hamilton also won against Dundee and therefore stayed away from the waste pipe of the automatic drop. Few would have bet against it, of course. But even fewer would have expected the bet to be honoured. Aki's though are still circling the plug hole and will face a stiff test in the United who beat Falkirk in the semi-final of the playoffs. In the championship, Livingston and Brecon step up with Ayr and Wraith going the other way. In League One, Stenhouse Muir and Peterhead depart while Arbroath and Forfer are promoted from League Two, where Cowdenbeath beat off a challenge from East Kilbride for their place in the major leagues. As we said, only the Cup final and the Premiership playoff final to go this week. And more on that next programme, of course. Uh, a quick word about arguments. Pedro Cachinha was upset that Derek McInnes didn't meet him for a post-match drink at Petordia earlier this season and chopped him to the press. Rightly outraged, they got it all wrong, uh, as usual, and Derek McInnes delivered a few home truths in return. McInnes 
It is of course uh, a man with bigger fish to fry with a Scottish Cup to win next week. My hope is that Pedro isn't caught up in the intrinsically dishonest world of the MSM, who care nothing for the damage they could do to individuals. Wise counsel is my advice, Pedro. And perhaps you could go to the guy who gave sage advice to Lee Griffiths by advising him to take a morning after portion of humble pie and apologise to Brendan Rogers after publicly disrespecting him for Helen Thursday. That advice may just have caused the Celtic manager to take a screwdriver and not a hammer to the Shugly Hook with Griffith's name on it in the Parkhead dressing room. Well, the Craig White trial last week saw Craig White's lawyer Gary Withy and an executive from Ticketus, the company at the centre of the cash for season tickets controversy, both give evidence. The judge also last week put a stop to live tweeting, uh, which made our first guest, James Dolman's job, a lot more difficult throughout the course of the week. James, as you know, is tweeting from the court, and I spoke to him after court on Monday of this week. Uh, James, thanks for joining us again this week. Uh, I think the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask you about is that, that at some point last week, the the judge had banned live tweeting from the the court, but I, I, I believe that that has been reversed. It's not something we can comment on at the moment because it happened outside the jury process. But there was a period we couldn't live tweet. Today we started live tweeting again, just to say to people, none of this is a secret. It happened in an open court. People heard it, but it happened without the jury there. But it is something we can tell you all about when the case ends. So you know, we will fill you in at some point in the future of what happens and stuff. And it is, it is a story I think people may be interested in. Logistically, uh, though, um, uh, you know, like, like moving away from the story itself, as we, we, we can't really discuss that. But logistically, is it, did you find it was making it easier if you were able to like tweet and block uh, or is it easier just to do it, uh, you know, like, like the, the way that you've been doing it today? In some ways it was easier for me. Uh, to explain what I was doing, I was writing notes in a notepad and then going outside the court and tweeting them out. Yeah. So it did give me a chance to review it. But what was interesting was the number of people watching it. The page views dropped dramatically. People are much more engaged with it when it's live, when following it. So, so yeah, it was easier for me, but people weren't finding it, I don't think, as engaging as it is when it's live. Another development uh, last week was that, uh, that, that certainly you had inferred from the Advocate Deputy's uh, chat or, or information that he had given the judge about the amount of witnesses that he had left is that the, the case might well not last that 12 weeks that we had originally thought it might. Well, the Advocate Deputy told the court and the jury on Friday that had eight more witnesses left and they expected that would be completed by the end of this week. So the, we, we expect that the, process, the Crown case will end by the end of this week. That's what we've been told. Uh, are we allowed to talk about or speculate on how many defence witnesses there might be, if any? We could speculate all we want, but I have no idea <laughs> who, who Mr Finley's planning to call or we've not had any hints of Mr. who's being called or whatever. Um, the original estimate of the trial was eight weeks, sorry, 12 weeks. The advocate deputy said we're slightly ahead of schedule, so we would assume maybe six weeks of defence, but that, that's a guess, you know, that, that can change. The main thing to remember is, and you, you don't know how long a witness is going to be in court, because he's going to be asked a question. Actually, we've all only had new witnesses so far, so we can say he's going to be asked a question. You know, it, how long it takes depends on what the answer is. 
it does seem that, that, that a lot of the witnesses who've, who've already been there, and particularly I think from Defence Council, they've been in the, the, the box or whatever it is they call it for, for, for quite some time, some people for more than a day. And, and uh, it doesn't seem that there's that there's exactly a, a, a big narrative involved in them being there for all that time. It, it, you know, the, to me, that a lot of the time that's spent is spent on just getting some relatively, well, would appear to me to be insignificant facts out. I don't think, I, I mean, I have to ask you, something we've discussed before, um, the advocate deputy has to prove everything. You can't just assume anything. So when you bring someone from Ticketus up, you may think, well, we've heard this before because we heard it from another witness, but we still need the person to take this and go, yes, I did this, I did that, I did the next thing. Uh, so, so, and then obviously Mr. Friendly cross-examines and goes into the issues that he wants to go into. So it may seem insignificant, but everything has to be proved. Nothing can be assumed. So it's important that the person who signed the deal for Ticketus is in court, stands up and goes, yes, I signed this deal, it's my signature. All those things have to be gone through. We had a witness this morning, I think he was in for an hour, if, if even that. Uh, so some guy from a private bank so some witnesses can be very very short some can be longer it really just depends on the nature of the evidence they're giving what were the uh, the, the the highlights of, of if, that's, if that's what we could call them uh, for you from last week what were the significant uh, revelations to me what was interesting i mean obviously everybody's different but we actually got the mechanics of the deal how it all worked out the actual numbers the the issue of that on the Friday, they all meet to sign the final deal. Once the final deal is signed, there's more things. On the Saturday, there's a, a, what was called a notional board meeting, which never actually happened, which signed off the ticket to steal with Mr. White and another person who's on the board. They sign off the deal, and then the money was transferred on the Monday. The thing I found, I think, one of the most... I go by what tweets people like, and one interesting thing was the discussion about the pound coin, and a witness did confirm that the pound coin was flicked across the table at one of these meetings. So there actually was a pound coin, it appears, uh, flicked across the table at some point during the negotiations. So we saw the mechanics of the deal and the numbers involved are quite quite stunning. I mean, at one point we saw the numbers for Ticketus. Uh, Ticketus would have, in the 2011-2012 season, essentially owned more than 60% of the season tickets at iBooks for that season, which, which was a major impact on everything. So it was a very, very substantial uh, piece of business done by all sides. Has is, is there been anything, and again, you know, t- tell me if we're not allowed to discuss this, but w- one of the things that struck me as being very odd was that, uh, that, that if, as the witnesses have said, that tickets were going to be into Rangers for uh, as, as much as, you know, 60% or whatever of the season tickets or uh, over a certain period of time, that and that they probably knew that, that the club was in some difficulty, that why they wouldn't have had some kind of bomb-proof means of getting their money back, uh, you know, even if, if the club had gone into uh, to liquidation, administration or whatever? Well, what was fascinating about the documents we saw uh, from Ticketus was they did indeed discuss quite seriously the prospect of the administration yeah. and how they would be protected. In fact, Ticketus had an input. The shared purchase agreement between Murray and... Um, Wait, Ticketus had an input on that. They had an input on what was added to that, and they spent a lot of time discussing what would happen with the administration. I think one of the key points in one of the meals is from the Ticketus guys. They actually discuss a pre-pack administration and how Craig White could keep control of Rangers during the administration and how Ticketus investment could be protected. They also had a personal guarantee for Mr. White for the money as well. So the Ticketus did 
talk for themselves, you know, in terms of the club getting administration, what would happen, they had guarantees from White, they had a plan and we had discussed what steps would be taken if Rangers went to administration. The key thing is Finn, Mr Finlay keeps saying is the potential bill from Mr Finlay said last week, the potential bill for the big tax case, the employee benefit trust case, could be up to hundred million. No one knew what that was. So of course everyone within the transaction knows that that's hanging over them. As Mr Finlay said, it was the exocet coming towards Rangers. So everyone is discussing that. Everyone knows that that's potentially going to happen. So everyone is, is that that's the sort of like overhangs the whole deal, overhangs the whole thing. What about what will happen if this big tax case drops against us? But it's, amazingly enough, as, as again Mr Finlay pointed out, we still don't know the result of that tax case. All these years down the line, we still don't have a result. Of, of course, when you think about the, the the amount of money that was involved in it as well, I suppose it's a high risk business. The you know the sort of business that Octopus Stroke Ticketus were, were were involved in, but 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 it did seem to somebody like me who doesn't have a lot of money a bit cavalier, you know, <laughs> you know, like like, um, like like throwing that kind of money at something that they they were already discussing as a as a possibility of a pre-pack admin. I mean, the city of London runs on risk. No, that's the nature of the business. The more the risk, the more money they can charge for the business. I mean, Ticketers are always very clear. The guy from Ticketers again is very, very clear about this. It's not a loan. We've not given these people a loan, and we're a creditor. We own the tickets. We own that seat. So it's ours. And they expected, judging by the documents and what they said, that that would survive any administration event. So who was the, who? Who were the witnesses to today then? The, the gentleman gave evidence today. Uh, his position was he was a um, he ran a company I mean, a, an asset brokerage company and the only evidence he gave was that at one point he was about during this process he was about to be thrown out of his office he was going to be evicted from his office so he contacted Craig White and asked Craig White for £2,100 to pay the rent on the office uh, Mr White agreed to pay this and then the same gentleman as he, his words were concurrently wrote a letter to Murray Group saying I have seen that Craig White's got £10 million. So that was his piece of evidence today. The second witness is a lawyer who works for Dundaston Wilson, and he was going through a series of emails uh, which he exchanged between himself and uh, Gary Withy. You remember the previous witness? Gary Withy, who was Craig White's corporate lawyer. And there was an exchange of emails between them two, which essentially uh, discuss where's the money? Have you got the money yet? And there's a whole trail of emails we were discussing. Is the money coming? Have you got it yet? Withy's coming back and going, it's, it's on its way, it's the banking system, it's taking some time to transfer. So that, so that was the evidence there. There's a constant stream of emails between each party discussing, is the money here yet? Have you got the money? And, and uh, Withy's replying and saying, I have transparency on where the money is. And they're replying going, no, is it in the account yet? So so that was the sort of evidence today. Um, you know, the, the, there obviously was a, a bit of a mix-up in terms of the money coming in and everyone's sort of quite concerned about where it is and things like that. Of course, again, for the lay perspective, you know, when you listen to the stuff like that that you just referred to, and some of the stuff that was that was going on last week, and that that I heard in evidence was that it seems really strange and to, to the layperson probably really dodgy but but, but, you, but you don't know what is going on in, uh, you know every day in, in, in these circumstances you just said their tickets are in a risk business so what would 
seem bizarre and, and, and completely out of the question to, to somebody like me it's is, it is completely different to these guys who are used to this stuff going on day after day so is that not a difficulty for the jury because the jury will probably judge most of these things by lay standards and say you know, no sane person could do something like that you know the jury will judge it on, on the evidence that they're given, and, and I think people underestimate juries sometimes. There's something else I'll say which is a more general point, but I think it's applicable to almost all jurors. Sometimes, no matter how complex a case is, no matter how much really complicated, difficult evidence comes in, they often come down to very, very simple questions. By the end, I mean, the case could just come down to, any case could just come down to, who knew what, do you believe this person knew this, or did they not know it? So if sometimes the most complicated, difficult cases come down to a very, very simple question for you to say, do you believe this person knew about this or not? I'm not speculating in this case individually, but, you know, the, the whole system is designed, I and mean, we have a system here which is not great, as some people say it's the last part of democracy we have in our country, really. The 15 ordinary people pulled at random off the street make these decisions, and the whole process is designed that they, by the end, understand the decision that they have to make, and everyone, so at the end, the advocates will sum up they'll explain their case, and then the judge will sum up, explain the law, and then the, those 15 ordinary people, they will decide what the facts are, they will decide what the truth is. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's a, the whole system is geared to those 15 people, because at the end of the day, they make the decision. Are the jury allowed to use any like, mitigating factors? For instance, if if someone was had been charged with assault, for instance, and the jury thought that, uh, well, you know, the person who was assaulted was a really obnoxious type who was goading the other guy, and you know, okay, the law says that the guy assaulted him, but we are going to let him off because uh, we think he was provoked. Did, did they have, you know, the, the, that kind of latitude? Uh, no, no. The jury have to say that mitigation is something that goes to a judge. Now, of course, in, in an assault case, it is a defence to say you were provoked and you, you lost your temper. That's a defence that your advocate would put. But in terms of mitigation, is something you do after you've been found guilty to the judge. So the judge then says, well, I take any account of the fact that X and Y happened, so therefore that would be reflected in the punishment the judge does. But no, the jury have to simply decide the facts of the case. So they'll be told, you must decide, did the assault happen? Yes or no? But mitigation is something the judge takes care of. So it wouldn't be a mitigating factor if, for instance, if Craig White was to say in his defence, look, the, you know, the, the, this was a complete can of worms that uh, I didn't realise I was getting into, uh, and, and I did what I could to save the club, you know, that which would sound like mitigation to me, but but, uh, but is that the, a, a valid defence for him to use? I'm not going to comment on, on I can't comment on, on what strategies people say for defence. We haven't heard, the def I mean the key thing, one of the key things to tell juries, and it's important that everyone, I think it's a very important fact, never make up your mind until the end. Never make up your mind until you've heard all the evidence. A number of people have said to me, I'm really surprised, I've changed my mind after what I've heard. Now I would say, well it's not over yet, you're going to hear a lot more before the end. And that's something the judge instructs the jury virtually every day, certainly every Friday before they go away for the weekend. Do not make, don't speak to anyone about it. Don't discuss it with friends and family. Don't search, don't do your own research. Don't go on Google and search through the witnesses and see who they are. Don't do that. And finally, don't make a decision until you've heard all the evidence. So it's the same in this trial. You know, I say to people, 
don't leap to judgment. Don't make a decision until you've heard every piece of evidence. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to be honest. I mean, I think I've changed my mind from the beginning of the, the trial, but but not in terms of guilt or innocence. I, I think I've changed my mind from uh, from being absolutely sure about what was going on to now saying, well, obviously we, we, we knew very little about what was really going on until we've uh, we've been able to get this uh, this nice window into what's happening in court. So as you say, uh, you know, I think that, and of course the defence case uh, could be changing minds all over again when that starts as well. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, that's the thing, it's a trial. It's uh, The idea is both sides of an adver- adversarial system, I always have trouble with that word, an adversarial system. Both sides put their case, they have the argument, the jury listen, and they make the decision on the facts they hear. But that brings truth out. It brings out the... None of us, I mean, I don't think any of us at the start of this, we, t- we knew who tickets were, we had a vague idea that they sold season books, they bought season tickets or whatever. Now we know the ins and outs, the mechanics of how it all worked, how it all hung together. I think we all knew Murray was very keen to sell the club. I don't think Eddie was outside the imagined circuit with an idea of just, you know, how much pressure was on and how keen Murray got where to sell the club. They'd spent three or four years trying to do it. Uh, all those sort of things have been, I think, fascinating in terms of, we're looking at a very part of recent history and a part of recent history which hundreds of thousands of people are really, really interested in what happened. And now we're starting to see the detail and the mechanics of you know, what at the time was tabloid headlines and stuff. We're now starting to see the ins and outs, the detail of exactly what went on over that period of time. And that, that's the great thing about a case. Well, well, that history is uh, obviously about to unfold again over the over the next uh, days and, and weeks as well. And James, as ever, thanks very much for uh, for bringing us up to speed. And hopefully, we can speak to you next week. Pleasure as always. Thanks all. Thanks a lot. Cheers, bye. Jim Craig is one member of a unique band of 11 footballers whose name is indelibly marked in the history of not just Celtic Football Club, but of Scottish football itself. As a member of Celtic's famous Lisbon Lions, who won the European Cup 50 years ago this week, his place in those histories is assured. The achievement is an enduring one partly because of the nature of the victory won for attacking football over the hated Catanaccio of Helenio Herrera's Inter, but also because it has never been emulated. I spoke to Jim at his home this week and the memories came rushing back as he took me through the joy, the sadness and the pride he still feels over that remarkable season when a Scottish club became the first non-Latin side to win the big cup. In this, the first of a two-part interview, Jim talks about the excitement of that season, preparation for the final itself, the arcane spying systems employed by Chuck Steen at the time, the best winger he ever played against, and how Brockville was often tougher than the San Siro. Jim, thanks very much for uh, for joining us today. You're, you're probably maxed out in stories about 1967 in Lisbon, uh, with all the activity this month. Uh, but here we are talking just a couple of days before the 50th anniversary uh, and uh, what's your overall emotion? Uh, very varied, I mean um, time has not always been good to the whole team, we've lost four members of the team who played uh, on that day plus a couple from the squad, the, the, the bigger squad and we've got a couple of guys who are quite seriously ill so there's that emotional side where it's you know, you feel for them, but at the same time, you know, when we look back on it, 
my main memory of, is just one of excitement about the whole occasion, you know. It was absolutely fantastic to be involved in it. And yeah. as much as you talk about it beforehand, when it actually happened, it was just a wonderful day. How long did it take uh, before you realised the enormity of, of, of the achievement? Well, you must remember, John, that we were at that time involved in a league championship race, very close, because Rangers were pushing us all the way. We were also involved in a Scottish Cup final in the same month, Aberdeen, good team, and um, we'd only drawn with them 0-0 uh, a couple of weeks uh, before that. So all that sort of pressure was keeping us away from thinking too much about uh, Lisbon. Uh, and I mean, it took... It took us to the second last game of the season against Rangers at Ibrox um, to win the title and, and that was only about you know just about a fortnight before uh, Lisbon and we already we then had another game to play against Kilmarnock before the season ended so the pressure was on the whole way um, and it was only after we finished against Kilmarnock that the boss started thinking about Lisbon. He was lucky enough to to be able to go and see uh, Interplay uh, Juventus, I think it was, um, and he came back and, and told us a bit about them. But <laughs> the thing I would like to stress to people is that uh, an example of how far ago that was. There's, uh, we had never seen Inter play before we played against them. There was no film. Yeah. And there was no matches in television that you could record at night time. There was no stats from all these companies telling you what every player did and all that kind of thing. And it was somebody went to see them and came back and gave you a rough idea of how they played, what that system they used. And if I asked a question like, you know, as a full back, as a right back, um, the main man I was up against was a left winger. So I was really interested in what his strengths and weaknesses were. And they didn't know, to be mm -hmm. quite honest, because when I said, you know, how quick was he? Yeah, pretty quick, which is no real, you know, help <laughs> whatsoever. Whereas if you had a chance to see him before or see him in action against another fullback whom you knew, you could test his pace and see how fast he was, you yeah. know. And, you know, for those of you who never played fullback, when you're up against a winger who is very quick, you cannot afford to let him go down the line because he's going to cut in towards goal either get, either get a cross in or a shot at goal you've got to push him across the park make sure he I don't mean that literally but you know you've got to direct him across the park and make sure he's heading across the way and he's going to run into people rather than go straight down the line yeah and did, did you have any network of uh, people who had been up against it was Dominguini wasn't it the, the, well the Kaplan, was, was uh, my, oh he was the centre forward oh sorry I yeah, thought he was but the centre. way it lined up he, he was uh, and the team was outside left you know but um, no I, I didn't know very much um, about them at all and uh, I mean at home it was very much better because you know you played the people regularly and it was at that time there were a lot of good wingers in Scotland you know I mean I think Willie Johnson was probably the best winger I ever played against and I was lucky enough to play against Francisco Hento and Jagan Jazik uh, from Red Star Belgrade it was all guys at the top of the profession but Willie was quick very very quick and you had to work really hard against them all the time and I think that he, one of the reasons you know that we did well at that time against Rangers who you mustn't you know forget their role in all this they were second in the league by a very narrow margin yeah. and went on to fail in the final of the, uh, the Cup Winners Cup and I don't think I'm alone in thinking that if I try and take my bias away <laughs> I thought I were unlucky on that night yeah. to be perfectly honest you know 
And speaking of Rangers as well, how aware were you guys of the fact that they were in a final the week after you as well? Or were you just too focused on what you were oh, doing? Oh no, very aware. I mean, we also had Kilmarnock in the semi-final of the first cup. Yeah. They played Leeds United as well and were unlucky over the piece to lose to them. Um, but no, I mean, the old firm for most of uh, their career together were together you know one, what one did affected the other and vice versa and um, we were all interested in, in what Rangers were doing because to be perfectly honest we were quite friendly with the Rangers players there was none of the, the, the anger and it was quite funny sometimes because the fans didn't quite like seeing that you know they wanted you to hate them well you know you can dislike them for 90 minutes on the football pitch but at the end of the game it's, it's a sporting occasion you shake hands at the end and you know I'd probably meet them at the dancing later on you know not that you dance with them but you, you would meet them somewhere later on and stuff like that so it, you know that was never a problem no we were very well aware of what they they were doing and it because it was probably a tribute to us that a team which had reached the uh, final of the Cup Winners Cup we had overcome them in the league the Cup in the League Cup yeah you know, without in the Scottish Cup meeting them directly, but in the other two competitions, you know, we're up against them all the time, and um, it was probably a boost to us that we had managed to um, subdue this team. During the season itself, did you was there a time when when you began to think, you know, this could be really really special here, or, or did that happen a bit later on, or? or well, I'm going to, this is going to sound a bit big-headed, and I don't mean it in the slightest, but we were a kind of gallus bunch, you know, to use a wonderful, you know, Glasgow word. You know, we're quite confident of, on, of our own ability, you know. And sometimes the toughest places, the toughest games were in the most unlikely places, you know. You would, you go to the San Siro and get a nothing each draw or something like that. Not particularly that year, but, you know, in future years as well. Now you yeah. come back on a Saturday, you'd be going to Brockville to play Falkirk, and my God... What a tough game that would be, by the way, because their fans would say to you, ah, you might do all right in the San Siro, but you're playing us today, and they would be fired up for it, and the team would be fired up for it, because their attitude was, you might be all right against Inter or AC Milan or Inter Milan, but you're now playing us, and they would rise to the challenge, and these games would be ferociously difficult to play in, you know, and um, so we always had that to cope with all the way through, that kept our feet on the level, and um, it's an old cliche, but we really just took one game uh, at a time as it came. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you about that, because, because that the, that idiom came into being round about that time mm. because because Celtic were involved in so many things and mm. I can often remember people asking Jock Steen you know what about they say well no it's the next game they, yeah. we, we, we concentrate well he was very game. good at that he was, was always just you know no, don't, let's, not, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves and things like that we'll just treat the next game and the other thing you must remember at that time is we had an astonishingly small pool of players you know we had, yeah. a, we had John Fallon as a backup to Ronnie Simpson you had Willie Neal as a backup to Gemma and myself you had Charlie Gallagher as a backup to Bertie and Bobby Murdoch in the middle of the park and uh, up front you know, you know you had the forwards who played in the final plus John Hughes mm -hmm. and, and then Joe McBride of course didn't play after Christmas so you had a really astonishingly small pool of players and we were a bit fortunate I suppose that uh, apart from poor Joe uh, nobody got an injury which kept them out for a great length of time I mean you can't go through a season without getting the odd knock here and there I got touch a concussion but nobody diagnosed it as concussion at the time um, <laughs> the 
I tried to stop a free kick and I went right over backwards and I was very stupid because I went to Fitzy after a couple of days and I said doctor, club doctor and I asked him why the back of my head was sore and he says because I remember it well you had a you had a turf for the back of your head as you went down and I never thought of that you know I remember bracing myself I saw the shot at the last minute and braced myself I got it just above the nose and that was sore for a few days but by my head was flaming looping you know and he says to me no you went down backwards and your head hit a turf I said right okay so but I mean you might be concussed but that was as far as I went you know and nowadays you would be hauled off and uh, and treated for it you know and uh, you got to pass test protocols before you get back on again but see we, we, are, we are talking about those guys uh, who were the, 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 the other guys in the squad who, who mm. didn't they play in Lisbon what, what, was there a, a real squad feel about, about Celtic Park in those days or, or you, you know are, are those guys were, were they always really part of the whole yes, thing yes they were because right up to the last few weeks they always got a game most yeah. of them. Um, I mean, I, I was out of the team because I missed the American tour the previous summer. I was selling my finals. And um, and the team had done well over there out of 11 games. Of, I'm speaking off the top of my head here, but they, they won, I think, about eight and drew three, you know. So yeah. it was a really good tour. And, and the boss continued with Gemmo and Anil when uh, the season started again. And uh, I was in the reserves and um, I was playing well and I was in to see the boss on a regular basis and he kept saying to me the same thing. He says, Kenny, I'm sorry, but we're winning. And he says, I can't really start chopping and uh, chopping and change the team. And I said, and uh, my argument is always the same. I say, yeah, you might be winning, but you're not playing particularly well at the back. All your attacks are coming down for Gemmo on the right-hand side and he's not as good a player on the right as he is on the left. And I said, you need me in there, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm. So I chipped away at him for, God, it was a long four months because it was December before I got my chance. They had two bad games in succession, Aberdeen and nothing each draw. And then Dundee United, I see two defeat. And that was when I got my chance. And you've got to take a chance or you're out when you're in there. So from then on, I thought, um, you know, in retrospect, and also I thought at a time that the defence was going to play. It would have been Simpson Craig and Gerald Murdoch and Neil Clark would have been this, the people you would have played, you know. Yeah. But further forward, it was more of a problem because you did have um, the the numbers there, John Hughes, um, Charlie Gallagher, uh, Bobby Lennox, Willie Wallace, Stevie Chalmers, Jimmy Johnson, and um, and up to Christmas Joe as well, who'd banging in the goals, you know. So it ended up top scorer, top scorer like yeah. as well. So it was, um, but they all got a game, you know, at different at different times, and that that kept them kind of quiet, but. As I've mentioned in my blog, you know, there was one player who came up to me one day and just said right out of the blue, we're actually walking up to Barrafield. And he said, um, well, you guys in the defence are lucky. You know, and I said, why? He says, because, you know, it picks itself. Now, you know, you you know yourself, but he says up front, you know. And I'll make the player nameless because it's not fair to, uh, to name somebody, but he said, you know, up front, it's, um, we're, we're not sure. He's, he's, he's chopped and changed the team up front a wee bit, as he did, you know, there were, uh, you know, there was various people came in and out at different times for different games and um, uh, it, was, it wasn't it was until quite near the end of the season that the, 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 the midfield and forward line sort of evolved as it did, you know, whereas the defence had been kind of steady for a few months, you know. But Stephen found that about a dilemma as well about, about having players who weren't happy about being in the team as well. Well, you can imagine a, a manager's dilemma. Don't forget, he, as I've mentioned before, he went to see Real Madrid. I was there myself that night. I was in the schoolboys enclosure. Um, and uh, we watched European uh, Cup final, European Cup final uh, 60 yeah and um, 
he told me himself that he went to see Di Stefano, right? That was the reason he went, was to, everybody wanted to see Di Stefano, and he was an outstanding player. But he realised when he was watching the game that with the exception of Santa Maria, who was the centre-half for Real Madrid, all the other members of the team, obviously apart from the goalkeeper, got involved in the play. Yeah. And he realised that that's how a team was really, really successful because attacks could come from anywhere and the opposition, you know, sometimes you play against a guy who's a star outside right and the left side of the team is maybe not as good and he didn't want that. He wanted balance on all sides so that the attacks could come from from anywhere and that was what he, had, he was always trying to achieve. Now, when he when he came into Celtic Party, he must have thought it was manna from heaven because he'd Game on myself uh, at full back, who could play a bit and also defend. Um, McNeil in there with Clark, and don't forget Billy, myself, and, and uh, Tommy Gale were all 6 foot 1, so you get a bit of height for mm-hmm. cross balls and things. And um, he had pace in the wings with Johnson and Lennox and Bertie Old, but pace at that time as well. And uh, Willie Wallace, a great buy coming in from Hearts, just took it straight away. And Stevie, a tireless worker, running around all over the flaming place, you know, as well. So, and then you had a man that controlled him in Murdoch, in Murdoch Park, you know, and just um, he dictated terms, you know. Um, so there was everything there that uh, was required, and, you know, it just worked. Um, when it had to work, you know, the Scottish Cup final. Uh, we only played, you know, we didn't play very often together up till then, but the team uh, the, the team that actually went, took the field in Lisbon had played together, I think, five or six times, you know, beforehand. And, um, including that Scottish Cup final? Including the Scottish Cup final, and it always looked um, pretty good. And uh, I think, and that was why that player, who was one of the ones that wasn't in the squad, I wasn't in a team, said, you know, you guys are lucky, um, you know you're in. And I'd never thought of that before because, I mean, I had six months trying to get in. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was quite tough playing reserves all the time. And uh, and then, and I'm sorry to say this, but when the first team came through and won 4 nothing, a wee bit of a knife to the ribs, you know, I won them winning, but 1-0, <laughs> playing badly <laughs> as well, because that's the only way I'm going to get yeah. my chance to get back in again. And it was those, those two matches. Near just on either side of Christmas or around about Christmas time. I suppose the guy that who who you replaced in the team was Willie Neal. Yes. And yeah. how how was your relationship with, with Willie? Fine. We, we all got on very well. Actually, you know, I've often said that we weren't in and out each other's houses all the time. Yeah. Uh, but um, there was never any rancor between guys who were going for the same position. And um, when you were down for a meal, you just sat wherever you wanted to sit, you know, and everybody was very good at, at, at that kind of thing. And um, I think we all appreciated that, you know, there was a fair bit of talent around and, and you had to help each other to, um, uh, just to make it even better as well as a team. Because I'm always very careful, you know, I, as you know, I do quite a number of presentations about histories of Celtic and, you know, things about Lisbon and all that. And I'm always very careful to stress that I'm not really a great fan of play of the year dinners or something like that because this is a team game and it must work as a team and the reason it works is because all aspects of the team work and I showed a classic example of people think Celtic always had a great period in the past you know well during the 1920s and the 1930s the same record was there they won five trophies three in the Scottish Cup 
in each decade. Now you can ig- not ignore those, but you can put those to one side because you can be lucky in cups, you can be lucky with your draws, you can be lucky with the way things happen because it's a one-off game. Yeah. Um, leagues tell you how good a team was, right? Celtic only won two league championships in the 1920s and two league championships in the 1930s. Now, while all that was going on, McGrory was banging in 472 goals yeah. in 445 matches. So something somewhere else in the Celtic teams of that time wasn't working because they only won two league titles in the 20s and two league titles in the 30s. Of course, you look at the, 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 the just as an example, the, the, the three Scottish teams who, who won European trophies, mm. uh, yourselves, 1967 Rangers in 72 in, in Aberdeen. There was the you know teamwork. They they were first and foremost teams, weren't they? But but sure. also had outstanding individuals. Yes, but the, the individuals have got to be grafters to take part in yeah. the team as well, you know. And um, you you don't get an occasion where uh, I mean. Top team just now, uh, probably one of the top teams in Europe, uh, Lionel Messi. You could never accuse Lionel Messi of not working hard. No. He's a grafter yeah. on the ball and off the ball. You know? I think all of those really and top, top players have always they been... They all realise Cruyff was the same. Yeah. They all realise that you've got to put a shift in. And you've got to get that right throughout the team. And, I mean, there have been players in the, in the history of, of the game who have not been like that, but have been generally recognised as having tremendous talents. Uh, and I don't necessarily need to name anybody, but they've all got to play um, a part in the game and a part of the game plan. And that is a classic example, isn't it? Celtic, only two titles in the 20s, two times in the 30s, and from the early 20s, to the late 30s McGrory is scoring goal after goal after goal more than a goal a game unbelievable record right and the rest of the team somewhere along the line I didn't see them play obviously (laughs) so I can't give a, a fairly accurate assessment but somewhere along the team things weren't working out Right. And that was what Steen recognised, I suppose. So he then recognised that every part of this team that he wanted had to play its part, and that was what he was particularly keen uh, to promote. Has history been uh, overkind to, to Jock Steen, or was he really the trailblazer that, that everybody says? No, I don't think so. I, I mean, um, I had a difficult time with him when I first came in to the team because I was half way through the fourth year of a five-year dental course with people telling me at the dental hospital I had to think for myself and if I was dealing with a case and I was getting myself a bit involved and it wasn't working out I had to think how to get back out the case and all the rest of it you know and uh, then I got to the part of this man and says no, no I don't want you thinking just do what you're told you know, and all that kind of stuff I couldn't cope with that right so I always started asking questions and he said to me one day doing it Seymour um, we're coming out the room and he says uh, you're always wanting to ask questions and I said well and I waited for a minute or two because I was going to turn left towards the reception when I got to the next corner and I said a more intelligent manager might wonder why I want to ask a question and I turned left and he came after me and he called me around and he said what do you mean and I said well you've never asked me why I want to ask a question he says let's go back in again so I'm back in the room again and the board was up and the team was up on the board he said right ask a question I said well I'm not being cheeky when I say this but um, I think the plan's a good one I like it and I said what um I said I've got a fair bit of work to do on the, the right hand side because you know uh, you know well I've got Bobby Murdoch a great player 
he's not as mobile round the park as I am so I sometimes have to cover a wee bit for him on the defensive side and I said the genius in front of him never understood your plan I said he was looking out the window all the time you were talking about it right so I said sometimes in the course of a game I have a, a left back a left half an inside left and an outside left coming towards me and you're shouting at me out of the dugout oh, well, I would rather you told me just now and I'll take it on board. I says, I don't like players knowing too much about it. And I said, well, I would rather know than you shouting when I'm about to make my mind up. I said, so tell me what you want me to do in this situation. So we discussed it. And from then on, for a few games, if it was a big game and he did that, he would wait behind and I would go out and I'd come back in again. And uh, he said, right, question. I would say, no, nothing. Fine, I'm okay. Right? Or, or I'd say, well, just what if? That was always the question, what if? You know, and he say, right, well, I think, I'll think what you should do there is, and that's fine, okay, I'm grand with it. Okay. I suppose that's man management to, to some extent as well, has part known that, 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 that different people need to be to be treated yeah. in, in different ways. But the curious thing was that the players twigged what was happening, yeah. and within a few games, they started coming in as well because um, they were interested in finding out as well, and then it just became the norm where you ask questions. But to begin with, I think part of it was that. He was uncomfortable uh, with the questions. He didn't want to be put on the spot, but then realised that it wasn't making any difference to his position. I wasn't challenging his authority. Yeah. I was just wanting to know, what if this happens, what do you want me to do? That was, you know, that was all I was wanting to know. I was no challenge to his authority at all. But I think to begin with, he thought I was challenging his authority, and I'd made it quite clear. No, 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 I, I like the plan. I think the plan's a good one, but and I, for the reason I mentioned, you know, I sometimes get a bit isolated, and I've got three or four players coming at me. I'd rather you tell me, what do you, what do you think I should do in a situation like that? You know? When they, they, it became clear that the Inter were going to be your opponents in the in the European Cup final, what was the feeling in the camp? Was it was it still was it that gallusness still there or, or was yes, it? Yes, it was because um, we didn't. I mean, Inter's record. We didn't have uh, you know uh, laptops and iPads in those days. If you wanted to find out anything, you had to go to the library and look up stuff there. You know. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, we knew, somebody told us that Inter had won the European Cup twice in recent years and played this system called Catanaccio Defensive System and all that kind of stuff, you know. And um, we were gallus enough to think we could take on anybody by that point, you know. The toughest team we'd played was definitely Vosvodina. Vosvodina were an excellent yeah. side. And um, Your dad didn't agree with you, though. What, about beating Inter? About, aye, he, he, he thought that, uh, that Inter might be a bit strong. Yeah, for yeah, but I think he was more nervous than anything else. And yeah. it took me ages to persuade him to, you know, come along. And I only persuaded him just before, uh, about a fortnight before the game. And I had a, a seat book for him and a ticket and all the rest of it. And him and Uncle Philip came out uh, to watch us. But, um, no, Dad was just a warrior. And, yeah. uh, you know, uh, he used to come and see me whenever he could but he worked on a Saturday so he didn't get to many Saturday games but he'd come midweek and uh, followed me since I was a kid you know and there was one classic night where uh, I, I, was, I was playing up front I was playing inside right and uh, I get challenged on the back and as I swiveled I hit the guy at the same time he was being, he needed me right in the back but he needed me on one side so I, I kind of up there I pivoted and as I landed with one foot I smashed, smashed the right in the face you know and uh, <laughs> I went right over backwards and I was standing looking at my hand because when you see John Wayne doing it in a television, you know, <laughs> oh, that's what broke everything, you know. And um, I got it off, you know. And uh, 
So when I went home, I, I, when I came out after getting changed, I noticed he wasn't there. He'd, he'd gone home himself, you know. So when I got home, my mother said to me, you're a perfect as a grey spider, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I said, um, yeah, well, these things happen, you know. And uh, my father said to me, um, uh, why'd you do it? And I said, well, he was very rude to me, and I won't use the expression, but I said, he questioned my religion, you see, as well. Oh, he says, did he? My father said, and my mother turned to him and said, that's no excuse, right? You shouldn't be doing things like that, you know? So, <laughs> yeah, you're past. <laughs> was, it, was, was there any negativity at all in, in, the, in Celtic Park when, when you was into? No, not that I remember at all, John. It was, um, the conference that was always there was, was very catching and everybody felt it and um, we worked really hard at training and everything um, and the league campaign was going fine the Scottish Cup campaign was going fine as well um, there was a wee bit of a delay in finding out uh, who we were playing of course because although we uh, knew after the game against uh, Dukla over in Prague uh, it wasn't for I think the best part of a week that yeah. we found out it was Inter because they had to go to a third game yeah, and, I, yeah. and you know how they always accuse you know Italian clubs rule Europe and all that kind of thing and they run the, the organisation well I, <laughs> I thought that as well because when I went to a third game against CSK Sofia was held in Bologna you know <laughs> and I'm sure you could have picked yeah. a more neutral venue you know <laughs> <laughs> Bologna, you got one team from Italy and one team from Bulgaria, you know. So uh, <laughs> the questions rose again. I was telling you to run it all the time, you know. So, um, but no, I, it, it was never really uh, an issue, and it was just this intense excitement. And um, by that time, we'd been down to see Mill for a few days and um, uh, do some pretty hard training before um, the final week, and then headed out to um, Lisbon on, the, on a Monday. When did the manager start talking about Inter? As soon as he came back, he mentioned it. Um, from seeing them play? Uh, yeah. From seeing them play, yeah. yeah he mentioned it, because he said, you know, I want this one, it's fresh in my mind, so he talked to us about it, and then he would mention bits. And we had, I'd, curious enough, a lot of the, uh, of the things you learn in those days was from the papers, because um, he would do an interview with the papers, whereas he you wouldn't interview the boss, you know, um, in the dressing room or anything like that, so, you know, for everybody, you know, whereas, so you'd read the papers at night time and find out what he said, you know, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really crazy setup, but it's just, it's the way it's done, yeah. you know, you, you don't, you know, because other players will say to you, you're shooking up to him again, you know, and uh, <laughs> uh, so we, um, uh, when we got to, um, uh, to uh, Lisbon, um, the first thing that impressed us was the sun, you know, fantastic by the way, you know, and because um, Glasgow evening May is obviously a chance of some dodgy weather, but it was absolutely amazing there. Nice to tell, Esserong, uh, the Palacio was still in a beautiful place. But uh, you weren't allowed in the pool, were you? No, 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 only no, Joey Bride was allowed in the pool. Yeah, no, you? no, yeah, keep out the sun, we could sit outside, we're under the shade and all that kind of stuff, and um, went to the, the National Stadium on the Tuesday evening at half past five to do a, a session there <clears throat> and um, find out that the Italians are sitting watching us, um, which I don't suppose would happen nowadays. I would think it would be much more private, but um, you know, they sat and watched us and I don't think learned anything because the boss did a very late session and um, nothing that would have told them anything at all. And, um, and the, the, the training went very, very well. But we had a very strange moment the night before because um, there were one or two fans uh, arriving in the hotel and the boss 
I wanted us out of the place for a wee while to get a bit of peace. And um, not that we didn't want to meet the fans, but it was just, you know, uh, he didn't want us getting bothered or anything like that at all in case more numbers turned up. So we went out of the hotel, turned left along a wee bit the road and then up a side road. And there was a pal of his called Brodie Lennox at a house up there. And we went to see um, Italy play, sorry, England play Spain. It was at Wembley. And... Um, we came back down again down the same road and nearly mocking suddenly said uh, there's a hotel there a big sign above it Palacio Hotel so we'll take a sh- shortcut down here so we went down a hill and climbed a wall at the back of the hotel the night before a European Cup final you know and I've always thought it was, and it was dusk you know, not completely dark but dusk you know so you couldn't really see where you're putting your feet it could have been glass it could have been potholes it could have been anything at all no rowing boats we had broken over no no it wasn't as bad as that then but um, you know and of course it, the hill was steep enough where you as you try to walk down it you have to start running down it you know to yeah. get to the bottom and then climb this wall and, and drop into the hotel grounds and amazing the night before a European Cup final who were the Warriors? in uh, the team um, actually uh, well John Clark has always been a, a warrior and um, you know would hog the toilet before a game but um, and Ronnie funny enough used to get pretty nervous as yeah. well I was better I was I was bad the night before because not that game particularly but you know other matches the boss would put a team up on the board and discuss how we're going to do and I would sit there and think to myself that won't work or he can't do that you know <laughs> <laughs> and I'd feel the knot in the pit of my stomach you know but the closer I got to the game the better I felt and by the time I walked out I was fine yeah. I had no nerves at all by that time it was very strange how you know different people react you know whereas others you know McNeil, McNeil for all his experience and, and uh, you know get a bit nervous too and yeah. he would wander around and the last thing he put on was his shorts and he had to be the last one he put on his shorts and coming out of the tunnel Murdoch had to be last and he had to have me in front of him uh, because that made him feel comfortable yeah. and um, I was happy to oblige it didn't make much difference to me but um, so it's his fault that you're not in that footy right yes yeah. Aye, yeah, right to the very end yeah so um uh, so that, and players always have these little quirks that, um, and if it makes them feel better then fine and Ronnie when I first joined the club used to go into the um, the toilet area where there was sinks and all that kind of thing and above the sink was a ledge and on the ledge was a little brown bottle and Ronnie used to open it and take a wee swig and it was a touch of brandy really and that was to settle his nerves mm. yeah um uh, so uh, placebo players, obviously <laughs> all players have um, uh, different procedures you know some put the right boot on before the left boot and, and stuff like that so, and, uh. Jim Craig there on the half century after Lisbon next week in the concluding part of our chat you can hear Jim talk emotionally about his teammates about his dad and about the fans as well as a pitch side view of the final action itself that's all to come next time Don't forget that you can subscribe to SFM Podcasts, including the Weekly Monitor, and you can do that at podcast.sfm.scot or on iTunes. It's free, so please go there, subscribe, and have a look at our previous episodes. Well, that's about it again for this week. Thanks to James Dolman once again for his uh, court reporting and to Jim Craig for sharing his memories. And our thanks to you, of course, for being at one once again with TWM at sfm.scot. I've been John Cole. See you next time.